Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Writing has long been a secret ambition for Septimus Paul. He became a college history professor after he was shot while he was a cop, providing him with a deep well of experiences to draw on. Now he's published his second book in a series entitled Frank Bellamy Meets the Angel of Death. So this is a journey that began back in high school, right? When I left high school, I had a book of um, short stories and somebody stole it, threw it in a river got rid of it, and that sort of derailed me for a while. And after I went to college, I went to London to do my PhD. And while in London, rather than doing my dissertation, I found myself writing fiction, <laughs> locked myself away. I wrote this book. When I tried to publish it, I ran into the catch-22 of publishing. You need an agent right. before the publishers touch you or you need to be published before the agents will touch right. you. So, right. so I, shelf, I shelved that. I thought, yeah, I just focus on completing my PhD and teaching, and that's what I did. Okay. So after I retired, after I retired, I guess my family thought I'd be bored. I said, hey, why don't you continue writing? Start writing again. And then I started again. Now, this Frank Bellamy Meets the Angel of Death series, too, there was a book before it. Right. That was Frank, yeah, Frank Bellamy, The Assassins. And this book is like a sequel to that book. They're both self-contained, but this is a sequel to the first book. So why don't you give <laughs> us a little synopsis of the first book? The first book deals with Frank Bellamy, a retired mafia assassin. The oil companies have decided to assassinate the president of the United States who is about to introduce legislation to nationalize the oil company. And they don't want that because all the books will be exposed and all the dirty things I've done around the world will be exposed. So they decide to hire Frank Bellamy. He turns down the, the assignment. So they went in search of another assignment. They end up in Europe and they brought in this European assassin. The FBI gets wind of the assassination plot and all Evidence points to Frank Bellamy. They think Frank Bellamy is the assassin. The mafia feels the same way. It's Frank. And if the FBI gets hold of Frank, he'll revolve, he'll re reveal where all the bones are buried, you know, oh, because, he, because he used to work for them. So um, they're all coming after him. So he now have to set out to identify this European assassin and stop him from uh, uh, assassinating the president. So he does that. He finally trace tracks down the assassin, gets rid of him, and so on. So basically, that's the the the, the, the plot of the book. He looking trying to trace down this assassin. Okay. Yeah. There are other subplots in it, but this is the main plot. I I have to ask you: Did you have any dealings with the mafia while when you were a cop? No, I had no dealings <laughs> with the mafia, but. <laughs> <laughs> Good, question. Good question. Well, I mean, you're no, writing about it. <laughs> I know. I had no deal with the mafia per se, but I've had dealings with a lot of drug traffickers. Oh, drug traffickers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost but, as good as the mafia, yeah, right? Yeah, almost as good. I interacted a lot with with drug traffickers, arrested some of them, raided them, you know, got in, uh, had contact with people in drugs, who, people who were addicted to drugs. So, yeah, I was very intimately involved in the whole drug business. Yes. So that, that definitely helped, right? It, it helped. It helped yeah. a lot. It, it gave me the background to write the book. It helped a so lot. Now Frank Bellamy meets the angel of death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there? Well, let me break it down for you. Now, the plot centers around drug trafficking, okay? And when we say drug trafficking here, we're not talking about weed and cocaine, but opium and heroin. A large, mm -hmm. amount, a large amount of opium and heroin enters the U.S. 
from Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan produces about 80% of the world's supply of opium. Most of it comes from there. Now, what the book does is a kind of subplot there. The book traces the passage of heroin and opium from Afghanistan to the United States, its distribution in the United States, uh, the whole addiction problem, and so on. Now, what the book does is the FBI and the CIA are trying to identify the main players in this distribution network. Those are the people the FBI, the CIA, and the Russian government are trying to identify because heroin use is a problem in the United States and it's also a problem in Russia. So the Russian government is involved. They're collaborating with the FBI and the CIA to identify the people behind the cartel. To do this, they reach out to Frank Bellamy. And Frank Bellamy now, this Jose Mafia hitman, he is offered the, the Washington, D.C. crime district. The New York Mafia offers it to him. There's a vacancy in Washington, D.C. because the boss there has died and they're looking for somebody they can trust. So they offer it to him. He's not interested in becoming a crime boss. He's retired. His business is doing well. And that's when the FBI and the CIA step in and sort of persuade him to accept the position. They explain to him that as a mafia boss, he will be able to help them identify the main players in the drug cartel and crush the drug cartel. Now, as part of the collaboration, he now, Bellamy, is forced to work with a ruthless <laughs> Russian agent, the angel of death, the angel of death. That's where who's she gorgeous, comes who's 007 drop-dead oh, gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's real gorgeous. So he has to work with her. She's already embedded in the Russian mafia. Oh. The Russian FSD, the Russian Secret Service, has already embedded her in the Russian mafia. So she and Bellamy met. However, <laughs> the problem is that before she, before she and Bellamy got together, before the whole collaboration effort came together, the Angel and Bellamy were already on the hunt to kill each other. Oh, nice. <laughs> and why now? Because the assassin in book one that Bellamy had killed was her lover. So she's out for revenge. So she's after him. As part of that revenge, she had blown up one of his car dealership, killing some of his his uh, his friends and associates. So they were after each other. Oh man! <laughs> In addition to that, now Bellamy suspects that she is in this for other reasons. She's protecting her family in Afghanistan who is intimately involved in the drug trafficking business. They own most of the farms and the farmers in Afghanistan. So he's wondering now, who is she protecting? Who is she working for? Is she protecting her family? Or is she really working for the CIA and working for the Russian government? So here, here are some problems there. Now, the Russian mafia is also after Frank Bellamy because the guy he killed in the first book also moonlighted for the Russian mafia. So they're coming after him as well. So, wow. Yeah, so he, so he has some problems. Now, to top it all off, Bellamy suspects that the CIA is out to create their own drug cartel. Mm. That the director of the CIA is creating his own. So he has to maneuver through all this stuff. <laughs> find out who is who, who should be trusted, who shouldn't be trusted. And uh, he knew that, so he believed at some point he may have to kill this angel because, oh because she's turned out to be no good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So basically, basically that's the, that's the plot. Do you envision a Frank Bellamy series here? Yes, yes. So how many you think you're going to do? I just completed the first draft for the third in the series. Do you get I, out and talk about these series? I talk to people online who have read the book, who follow me, and so on. 
we discussed it there. But then if the people who read the first book, and, and that's part of my target audience, the people who read the first book, they're anxiously waiting for this one, number two. They're, they're bugging me, when will it be out? When is number two be released? So that's one of my, my target audience. Yeah, I, I'm also targeting women, because I think that female readers will be attracted to the angel of death. They'll either hate her or love her, but I think she will appeal to female readers. As a matter of fact, after I wrote the first book, my wife belongs to a book club. The book club are only women. <laughs> so, so they all came to me and I said, wait a minute. Book one, there are no strong female characters. Oh. Women read books. We do most of the reading. And one of them said, look at the Netflix and HBO and so on. There are a lot of movies and series with strong women characters. We need a woman. <laughs> so when I wrote out it thinking about book two, I said, okay, I'll give them a strong female character. And that's how the angel of that was uh, kind of um, came to my mind and, and developed it. <laughs> nice. Um, an author who listens to his audience. Oh, gosh, yes. They, they were after me. I mean, they, oh, we need a strong one. So Secondness, yes. these book clubs are everywhere, man. I'm always promoting go find a book club, man. Yes. That's where you can stand in front of a, a room full of people who are mm -hmm. interested and mm -hmm. they can ask you questions and ask you about your process and ask you how you came up with the characters. You can sign your books and then they go out and tell people, yeah. go go talk to those book yes. clubs, man. They yes. love this stuff. Oh, yes. They love it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love this character. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And thanks for taking the time. You're welcome, Alice. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Writing songs and poetry since she was a kid, Laura Mountainspring waited until her eight children grew up to start writing novels nine years ago. And there was no shortage of imagination in Dawn's Prevail, The Search for the Light Scroll. Your descriptions and characters remind me of something out of Alice in Wonderland. Ooh, you know, it's really bizarre. One of the questions I was asked once was, how long have you known you've had this book in you? And I said, I can go back to when I was about three and a half years old and I was being babysat at the neighbors and I had this dream and this dream haunted me my whole life. I've talked about it my whole life. And it's the scene on Mount Kadesh. And it's like, oh my God, that's, I dreamt it when I was a kid. I've had this story my whole life. What happened on Mount Kadesh? Uh, Mount Kadesh, you have to read it, but um, that's where... You have the, the two, the dark scroll and the light scroll have to be finish their, or um, without giving it away, they have to accomplish their end before either the full light or the full dark can, can try to control the whole world. Tell me about the characters in this book. Well, it, there's a lot of characters and it starts out with one bird deciding he doesn't want to join the masses of birds that are flocking to Mount Kadesh. They don't know why, but every bird on the planet is headed towards Mount Kadesh. And he's like, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of going with the flow. And he drops out and he's on the ground circling. And his name is Maximus, Max for short. And he runs into the gnome, McGregor. And they become a kind of a team. And Max is like talking about how he never fits in and he's tired of being one of the birds. And the gnome is just happy-go-lucky. And they're taking a walk and they get kidnapped, as it were, by golden wolves the two dogs who take them to their master who is laurelwood one of the main characters and she's like oh i never wanted them hurt i just needed to talk to them so you meet laurelwood and she's sending uh, she has the dogs which are coda ford and blue and they're sent on different tasks and coda is put in takes a cart with max and the gnome mcgregor to go to Mount Kadesh, and with them you meet the mice, which is Sally Mouse and Frank Mouse. <laughs> and um, Frank Mouse is a redemption story because he turns starts out as a very nasty little character out for his own good, and in the end he's working to help other people. Um, he has a transformation. 
he ha- he transforms. He becomes a very noble mouse. And um, then you meet, not with them, but from another, another um, part of the story, you meet Festos, who is Laura Wood's half-brother. He's, he's a bad guy. And he's, um, he wants to get, he wants to get a hold of whatever it is that gnome. He wants that, he wants that light scroll. He knows the gnome has it and he's trying to find out what's going on. And he will, he, he, uh, and his mother, who's the witch of Melrose, decide they're going to, they torture Laurelwood to get the information. But anyway, that's more the plot than the characters. So you meet Festos and you meet um, Melrose, the witch of Melrose. And then, let's see, then you go underground because that's where they get the hive of the ogres. And it's, that's Max the gnome and um, Coda the dog. And they go underground where they end up running into Lagmore, who is a giant hare, one of the last of the giant hares. He's a rhyming character. I, I I ended up hitting myself many times going, why? Why did you create a character who talks in rhyme? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring out that old poet. Yes. Sounded good on paper. <laughs> yes. It works, but it was definitely, that was work. But um, and so from Lagmore, then um, we end up going to the Orchard King's estates because there's, there's seven... Um, realms, and there's the one realm, the realm of peace, the king who rules there also is the ruler of all the realms. And he's the Orchard King, also known as Trees. But uh, the Orchard King is a benevolent, nice, uh, wise old guy who actually has his own haunts and his own uh, skeletons in the closet, as it were. But that's during the ingathering. You meet him. Are you a Tolkien fan? Are you a Hobbit person? I've I've read <laughs> The Lord of the Rings. Okay. And I've and Return of the Kings. I've seen the movies, love the movies. My son-in-law knows all of it. Uh. He's up he's up there with Stephen Colbert. He knows everything about <laughs> Lord of the Rings. And he loves my book. Yeah, did you develop your own language outside of the rhymes? No, I oh, not Okay. I, no, um, there are made-up words, but I, I don't have my own language. <laughs> J.R. Tolkien was a professor of, and he was—he had knowledge of language that I couldn't even pretend to know. I know he's over the top, but anyway, yes, very involved story. You've got so many things going on here. You don't wrap this up in one book, do you? This is a trilogy. I'm almost done the first draft of the second book. Then I sit with my kids. I say kids, they're in their 30s. I have an English teacher, an English teacher, and the Tolkien fan. (laughs) He's a therapist. And um, we sit and they eviscerate me. They're like, no, mom, you can't say that, mom. They never tell me what to write. But they're like, we need more. We need more. You got to add more. Or you can't say that, mom. No. (laughs) That's great. They're, we call them the, the, the betas. Every author that I've read says you have to have a beta. And what that is is you throw all your ideas out and they go, no, that doesn't work. Someone, it can't be your, your it, it shouldn't be your lover because it's very personal. Right. And you don't want to be insulted by someone who's that intimate with you. But you find someone who's willing to say that doesn't work. Yeah. And who's not afraid. You want a funny story about one of the times? Okay. Okay, I was describing my dragon. Oh, yeah, there's a dragon. His name is Galdar. Galdar the dragon. There's several dragons, but Galdar is the main dragon. Okay. And I'm describing Galdar. And I use the word girth to describe Galdar's size. And all my 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 English teachers and my, my Tolkien fan just cracked up laughing. I'm going, what? I'm like, Mom, you can't use that word. Girth? Girth. Why not? Why not? Mom. Google it. The, the modern Gen X and Gen Z meaning of girth uh-huh. is not the boomer meaning of girth. When you use the term girth for the young kids, uh-huh. you're describing the male sex organ. Oh, please. Give me a break. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So All I'm the like... more reason to use the word girth. <laughs>
Oh my gosh, that's a riot. This might as well be for girth, right? Go girth, go girth. Wow. Are you out talking? You've got to be out talking about this book. Not yet. Come um, on. I have, well, because I have a very rare disease called, um, I have two very rare diseases, but the main one is porphyria, also known as vampire syndrome. Funny that should be, right? Uh, but um, I cannot tolerate bright sunlight or bright um, fluorescent lights. They make me very ill. So go out at night. <laughs> That's what I write. Have everybody um, bring candles. It would be it would be great. <laughs> it would you'd you'd bring them right into you know the mountain here. You know that when the time comes, I'll be more I'll be more mobile about it. Right now, I'm very hidden away. Okay. And I and I'm I'm avoiding influences. My my daughter's like, Mom, it's time for you to watch Harry Potter. And I'm like, I've got to finish my draft before I'm influenced. <laughs> and once I finished the first draft of the first book, we watched Harry Potter together. Oh, okay. So, so it's one of those. It's a process. It is a process. And I'm both, I'm very outgoing and I'm very also afraid of going out. It's, it's, there's a little bit of both. Well, you could do a Zoom. Eventually. You know, when the time yeah. comes. All right. I, I'm, I'm not going to say no, I won't do it. But I, okay. um, I have to make. I get very nervous. <laughs> All right. Let me ask you this. Is there a message here? One of the last sentences in the, in the third book basically says that we learn to stop and appreciate the people along the way, even if they didn't do anything specifically for us. I guess, you know, the overarching um, dawn will prevail. Good, good over evil prevails, but that we that there's a concept of what is good, what is evil. The question of is it just because it's dark doesn't make it evil. Just because it's light doesn't make it good. And I point out that the earthworm is lives totally in darkness, but without the earthworm, the trees would not grow. Hmm. And the vulture kisses the sun as it flies. Interesting. It's very metaphysical. My son described it as very. Taoist, and I don't know. I, I haven't studied it enough to know, but it, it is a very much of don't assume that you know what is good and evil. I like it, Laura. Really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You too. You made it very easy. I appreciate that. An engineer by trade, Stephen R. Jones finds his creative outlet in writing mystery books with a twist. This is his second book for Page, entitled a pattern, but he's written 26 books in all. And, you know, I think it's interesting how you got started. Um, my, my birthday is April 13. Uh-huh. And one day I just happened to look at the clock at the bottom of the computer screen. It said 413. I thought, oh, my birthday. And then that happened several days in a row. And I got kind of curious about that. So I started praying about it. And then I started seeing the number in a lot of different places, um, like the bus number on the bus I just happened to pull up behind. Uh, once it was the badge number of a detective on TV um, and just all kinds of places. <clears throat> One time I even saw it in lights way up in the sky and it just happened to be the price of gas. But, um, you know, I, I just kept seeing that. 413. Yeah. And then one day I walked into um, our bedroom and my wife had a black bag that she carried her Bible study books on and it was uh, sitting on the windowsill. And it had 413 on the side of it, but then it had the rest of it. It had Philippians 413, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I knew right then that it, it wasn't just a random thing. It was something that God really wanted from me. But right then I had no idea what it was going to be. And it took several years after that for me to realize he wanted me to start writing. And so I just started writing down some of the things that... Uh, have been going through my wild imagination. So this book, A Pattern, is a sequel to The Coded Note. I had the idea for Coded Note like years and years ago, like decades ago, because I just happened to wonder one time, you know, what would happen if someone knew they were going to be murdered and they left clues behind? And then particularly what if the clues were scriptures? That's where The Coded Note came from. And then um, the uh, A Pattern, it's got the same characters and it's a, a different kind of a mystery I found with everything that I've been writing. If I write something about a crime, it's never the same kind of thing. I've kind of covered the whole spectrum of crimes. Who are your main characters? 
Okay, and in these two books published by Page, the main character is uh, Sarah, who's a young woman pastoring her first church out of college. And it's a small church, and the denomination just appointed her there. And then Lee is a um, young detective who just moved from uh, St. Louis into the northern part of uh, Louisiana. And in the coded note, the woman that was murdered was Sarah's friend. Sarah had to help Lee solve the crime. And then in the uh, a pattern, the two of them are working together to strengthen Lee's crime-solving abilities and to help Sarah find ways to help him more. Okay. And they accidentally get involved in a series of kidnappings across the southern east uh, United States. Eventually, they find the pattern. Um, Sarah realizes it in the middle of the night that it's uh, all based on the six days of creation as found in the book of Genesis. So again, the scriptures come in. Yes. And the FBI gets involved. Yeah, the FBI gets involved. Of course, the FBI is trying to, to shut uh, Sarah and Lee out, but they, they keep working and they keep trying to give FBI the, the clues that they have found. Eventually, you know, they get to, closely into the book, they get to the point where they know what's going to happen next, but they don't have any power to stop it. Oh. Then Lee is uh, kidnapped himself, and Sarah has to go to his rescue. And when, when she does that, she goes into a tirade that uh, ends up being recorded and broadcast throughout the world. And the um, the villain at this point is revealed as the main FBI agent himself. Um, I added more chapters after that, but that was just to wrap things up. So you're on kind of like a, a mystery mystery track. Yes. And interesting that the Bible's involved and that this young pastor becomes valuable to this detective because it is her knowledge of the Bible that helps him solve not one crime, but several. Yes. <clears throat> Are you going to keep going with that? Um, yeah, I'm still writing, but um, after a while, I guess I get bored with one series and start another. Oh, so you're going to go off in a different direction? Yeah, I've been writing uh, the last ones about um, a private eye and um he calls Jesus partner number one. But um, anyway, he always prays for help in his cases. So so uh, what do you think God's trying to tell you here? It's a way of um, worship and trying to spread the news a little bit. I like to write in a way that I think makes people think a little bit about what's going on. So I, I hope that people are entertained by what I write, but I also want them to think a little bit. So with um, a pattern, when Sarah goes into her tirade, she starts talking about the differing views of creation, and she says it doesn't matter. You know, all that matters is who did it. It doesn't matter when or how or why. The only thing that matters is who. And so I just want people to start thinking about that instead of arguing about whether it took exactly six 24-hour days or whether it took thousands and thousands of years. You know, it's, I've heard both sides of the argument, and I don't really feel like either piece person is right. But, so that's where I'm going with that. Interesting. It was really nice talking to you. It was you too. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. You got it. Apparently, not everyone thinks the Harry Potter series is up to snuff. L.A. Tolbeck is one of them, a belief so firmly held it inspired him to write his book entitled Year Seven. My inspiration for this was, I guess, like in a word, spite. Um, I was at the gym with my best friend and he was doing a podcast at the time. And so I was complaining about Harry Potter fans and how, like, if I enjoy a story, I can still look at the things that weren't great about it. And I guess after 30 minutes of me complaining, he was like, can you just write all this down? Like, I want to use this. Like, it's very like controversial enough to generate some commentary, but like, fun enough that he could turn it into something. So I ended up writing this probably 50-page list, like went through all the Harry Potter books on audiobook and every example of like something that was frustrating or lazy writing or something that I didn't like or agree with and just this list. 
And sure enough, his uh, co-host, I guess some family issues happened, had to move, everything kind of fell through. Uh, but I'm looking at this list and remembering like the conversations I've had with fans who would say like, oh, well, why don't you do it better? Why don't you do it better? And so that was sort of the inspiration that kicked this whole thing off. I got to ask you, I mean, I read all the Harry Potter books because my kids were reading them. So I wanted to know what they were reading, right? Just give me an example of where the writing fell short. Uh, To me, it was some of the stuff that was glossed over that would have been really interesting to hear more about. Um, The big examples were like, how can he go home for the summer? Like, isn't he unsafe there? Oh, no, no, there's ancient magic. And it's almost like any time something was convenient, it's like, oh, no, it's just ancient magic. So that can't happen. And I was like, well, well, tell me about that. Like, how does that work? That's really cool. And then it's glossed over for the remainder. Interesting. Okay, so what did you come up with? Um, I came up with a story that I was going to turn into a Dungeons and Dragons module to have some friends run through that were Harry Potter fans to kind of show them like, you know, haha, this is what I was talking about. Uh, but that group kind of fell apart. And so I said, well, I'm not going to waste this. I'm going to turn this into my own thing um, and developed it from that into uh, like created the characters and basically played the game by myself and narrated it through. It was intended to be first a podcast script, then like a tabletop role-playing game. And then from there, the idea just kind of became more independent and turned into a a novel. Okay, so what's the plot here? So think any generic magical kid in magical school has to take down the bad guy uh, mixed with Groundhog Day. Okay. (laughs) So they're trying over and over again to beat the bad guy. And no matter what they do, they can't quite do it. And this is the final chance because everything's gone wrong in this timeline. So now they're already unable to do this at full power. And now, you know, the main character is kind of unmotivated, doesn't have the magical abilities. The side characters that are normally friends with them are now enemies. They've got people on their side who aren't quite equipped to deal with this. And then they still have to go forward. They still have to do it because they know they can't go back and do this again. The main plot is to to beat the bad guy. But rather than it being this super wizard or this, you know, space alien, whatever the, you know, bad guy of the week is, this guy is just a tax evader. And they need to stop him. And these are the prophesized kids but everything is sort of against them. They're kind of not, they're almost not the main characters in their own story to beat the bad guy. Why the title Year Seven? Uh, Because in the story, they have to redo this timeline of events over and over and over again. And this is the seventh iteration of this timeline where they have to do this and it's the finale. Okay, so this book ends here or, or is this part of a series? This was intended to be a one-off story, like just a for fun, almost satirical, just fun story to read. Um, I suppose there could be a sequel, but I didn't intend to leave off on any kind of cliffhanger. Like everything that I meant to resolve was resolved. Okay. Is, is there some kind of a message here? Um, it's more for fun than anything else. There wasn't meant to be any kind of grand message. It's more entertaining i guess if there was a message just to have one's own opinion and not really worry about more like broader strokes of the story and the intention behind it are you talking this up with with your friends and with people you know that that know you have been on this track um not really i I try to keep like my personal and writing life completely separate um i do have a couple friends who just are very interested in it um but No, I I don't really talk about my writing in my personal life, and I don't really talk about, like, vice versa. So any thoughts on promoting this? Oh, definitely. Um, Just through various, like, social medias and just kind of seeing what works, um, what platforms get the most engagement and going from there. Um, I don't have a ton of background. I don't use social media all that much, so I'm 
kind of learning as I go. It sounds like the kind of book that you want to start a discussion. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, and there are like, you know, forums and stuff where uh, I'll use it as a counterpoint, but it's one of those things where it has to, I think people have to read it to want to start the discussion. So it's more about getting it out there and then having the discussion once it's yeah, and getting it out there anonymously is what you need to do. Right. So where do we go from here? Well, my actually the same friend that I wrote this script for um, has kind of watched the progress with this and said that he wants to try writing as well. Um, so we have plans in place for a series uh, basically to branch out from there. Uh, effectively following a fantasy world from its creation to like modern era and then even beyond to get more into like a sci-fi twist. Um, but right now we're still working through like the fantasy castle age era. Uh, and we have one book already more or less finished. Um, we're just kind of waiting to see how the stories develop to make sure everything stays consistent before we move forward with publishing um, but ideally, we're planning for anywhere from six or seven to possibly even more stories within that universe. All right. It sounds like a plan. Listen, thanks for talking to me. Oh, I appreciate it. Dina McLean has done a lot of interesting things in her life. Her construction company, for instance, built Mickey Gilly's home, barn and radio studio in Pasadena, Texas. But it was eye surgery a few years ago that led her to write Promises Kept, detailing the gifts bestowed on her by her creator. I started writing two years ago. My best friend, Azita Mary, she said, you need to write. And as I looked at her and I said, excuse me? And she said, yeah, you need to write. You need to, you need to tell your story. It was my eye doctor who said my vision had been blurred from droopy eyes. And the book describes it all. It was like when she started drawing on my eyelids and she was using her fingers to open my eyes, it was like, O-M-G. It was just like everything came alive. Every gift ever known to man. Um, it's called an upper eyelid lift. And when she did this, your eyes were opened in more ways than one. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Not just my eyes, but my heart. Um, this book, along with the series of books, is mainly highlighting Azita Mary's and our friendship and the things that have gone on in our friendship. I talk about my childhood experience in growing up. Next door, I had one of my best childhood friends that I would have never made childhood if it hadn't been for my best childhood friend, Feather Hinge, and being able to help her in her life the story goes is one day as a young girl, I mean, she was only four at the time. She was out in the backyard of her mother's house playing. And of course the grass was rather tall. So Heather was laying on her belly and she was actually playing in the ant bed. And unfortunately her uncle came riding by with a riding lawnmower. Okay. And did not see her and actually severed her left foot off at the ankle. Oh my and God. And be because of it being a riding lawnmower, it completely cut her foot up to where it was not repairable. So during the process of the next couple years, I was there every moment, day and night, helping her to learn to walk again, how to hop on one foot. Um, she did finally, at the age of seven, get a, a prosthetic foot to try to use and walk on. That took some learning. And of course, going through school as a young child, um, 
children were are are very vulnerable to being teased. That was one of the biggest things that I could not understand is why the children would do that, calling her names and making fun of her because she had something happen to her that was not within her control. Everybody has a knowledge of creation in some manner. And I always used and kept it to our creator. So do you feel that you were put there for a reason? Everything in our lives is, there is a place and a time for it. And in everything in our lives, the creator has given gifts to each and every person. And they're completely made available to anyone who asks for them from the creator. It's not a, it's not a made up thing as you know people say oh this is witchcraft or this is uh, coincidence yeah no all the gifts whether it's a gift of hearing a gift of words a healing touch a vision um all of the these gifts are to be for all of humanity and not just be right. used for personal gain. They are to help everyone across the board, period. It's not about a culture. It's not about a religion. It's not about a race. It's not about a gender. It's not about a social gathering. It's not about a financial difference. It's not about an educational difference. These gifts from our Creator are for that purpose in changing a world that is full of hate into a world of love and and giving of oneself. The first novel is, is actually, I got the title to it, and that title is Taking a Different Route. That is more about my experiences in life and taking different routes. So this is the first book in the Promises Kept series, and you have 10 books. Correct. Believe it or not, for every experience and everything that has been shown, whether through a promise protection or through a gift, it has always been one to two credible witnesses to be able to say, oh my goodness, this truly happen and that in itself being able to share that much with people to know that it's not a fake thing our creator doesn't put things out there just to have them hidden there is a thing such as our creator's secret place and within that secret place there is that that peace that knowledge that joy And that is all for everyone that wants it. Not many people will want it because of the way our lives are today with the busyness, with the world, with the keeping up with the Jones, with the Internet taking life away from a social gathering experience. Um, But me personally, no, I'm not telling people about the books other than I met a gentleman while I was working in Houston this past six months who lived across the street from a home that I had been remodeling. And this young man was so inspirational. He he came up to me and he just said hello. And we became friends. And in that friendship as I finished up with this remodel I went over and I said Amir you were kind enough to make a friend with me and daily you would say hi and you'd ask me for help in in doing things over at your house I want to give you a book and he's like what you wrote a book 
said, yes, I did. I actually wrote, took them, but I went ahead and signed the book and I gave it to him. And while I was doing this house, I actually stayed in the Airbnb that was two blocks. And one of the, the weekend security guards became very friendly and we would talk and I would go back on the weekends and I would say, Sam, here's your book. And he's, he's like, okay, you got to take pictures of this. And I'm like, okay, I'll take pictures. That's fine. So you're getting the word out there one person at a time, face to face. Face to face. That's great. So with that, I'm hoping it gets out there in, in that manner. All right. I hope so too, Dina. Thank you so much. Thank you. James B. Beard shares his spiritual journey in his book, Walking Spirit in a Native Way, White Mocks on the Red Road. So this all began when you left the insurance industry after 40 years. Oh, absolutely. Uh, like most people, I, I lived a pretty average life. Grew up in a small town and uh, went in the service, got married, had children, had pretty much the American pie type of life. But you get to a point in life where you begin to question if that's what it's all about, if everything is there the way it should be. And I began to question my beliefs. I began to question what I was doing in our society, uh, relationships, things like that. And I began to search for some answers. In searching, I found I was looking for, I guess what you might say, Alice, is more than what was just the material things of life. I began to look for more of a connection with the creator and with spirit as I understood it. And I wasn't finding that in the uh, church I attended. I wasn't finding that in the life I was living. So I began to search for a different way to connect with spirit. In searching, I came across a book that my oldest daughter had gifted me, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Johnson. And after reading that, I suddenly realized that the Native American people had an understanding that they lived by and that they followed a set of values that they believed so completely that it was almost impossible to defeat them, even through annihilation. What I found was that their base culture is everything about connection with spirit, nature, connection with all that is, and that their traditional ways keep them mindful at all times of that, that in their belief, we travel in cycles. There is no death, so to speak. You leave this place and you travel into another cycle and another cycle continuously. And I kind of like that. So I uh, came to a place where I was introduced to an elder, Larry Matris. Uh, his Indian name was Nagan Pwe Widung, which means first to speak or first thunder. And he was a traditional man from Minnesota who would come out to the east and he would hold uh, what they call talking circles out here. And he would share some of the... Uh, stories of the people. He would share teachings that he had. He would do sweat lodges, and uh, he was also a medicine man, so he would he would do some healing when he was here. And I went to a circle where he was, and I listened to him, and I suddenly saw there was the person that had answers. I began to see that man is not just the material part of who we are that there is a four-way separation in men. We're physical, but we're also mental. We're also emotional, and we're also spiritual. And that to maintain balance, we have to stay in balance of those four parts of who we are. The book is about the walk, 
It's about meeting Larry. It's a biography and an autobiography, a biography of Larry's life and an autobiography of mine through a period of about 20 years. You knew him for 20 years after you met him. Yes, I traveled all over the country with Larry and with his son. Uh, I still travel with Native people very often to uh, different ceremonies and different uh, events where uh, teachings are offered or where I'm even asked to give some of the teachings because he passed it on to me. Has he since passed on? Uh, Larry passed in 2009. Is that why you wrote this book? The experience and the changes that happened in my life and the events that were happening due to what I was learning made me feel that I needed to write this down for my kids. So I began taking notes, and those notes became chapters, and the chapters became a book. I had no intention to write a book or to, uh, uh, if I did write one, to ever publish it. And as I wrote it, Larry was still with us. And uh, at the time that I'd finished the book, when I had the 14th chapter of the book completed, that's when Larry passed. And the way I wrote the book, it highlights the seven teachings of the Ojibwe, what sometimes are referred to as the seven grandfathers or the seven gifts. They would almost be like the Ten Commandments, except that they're not telling you you will. They're telling you these are gifts that you can use to have a better life. So the book goes through the teachings, but it also demonstrates the teachings as it goes through. Can you give me an example of one of the teachings? One of the seven gifts is honesty. And honesty, to us, that's just a word. We're honest, right? Uh, in the language, it's quad zewin. And it's be honest in every action and provide good feelings in the heart. Do not be deceitful or use self-deception. Each of those teachings has stories that go with it. One of the stories that uh, is in the book, there was a time that uh, Larry's son and I were driving close to his reservation, and the phone rang, and it was his sister, and she said, you need to come to the reservation right away. There's a sheriff and welfare worker at the house, and they want to take my son, and it happened. We were within 10 miles of there, but that was so coincidental that it was almost unbelievable that we would be there at that moment. And Nishnung, I said, what do you want to do? And he said, you pull over on the next road and go up that road. We came to a yellow farmhouse and then Brian got out of the car and he turned around and he said, Jim, I want you to drive into the reservation and help my sisters. And I said, well, wait a second. Why am I supposed to go in and help your sisters? And he said, I can't go on the reservation. They'll arrest me. Uh, he hadn't paid his child support. And as I'm driving toward the reservation, I suddenly got really, really scared. I'm starting to think this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. And suddenly a golden eagle flew out of the ditch in front of my car and started flying down the car, down the road. And I'm looking at the golden eagle, and I'm thinking of what I've been taught. But that eagle represents the protector. He represents the veteran, and that I'm a veteran. And I suddenly felt, okay, I'm okay. I'm being protected here. And I pulled up in front of the house, and the sheriff came out, and he said, what's your business here? And I said, they're my sister. And he said, you're not related to them. And I said, well, I said, their father is my teacher. And therefore, I'm part of their family. And he turned around, and he went back, and he talked to the welfare worker. They got in their cars, and they left. They never came back. When I came up to talk to the girls, they said, thank gosh, it was you that came. Because if Brian had come, there would have been a fight. And when they saw you, they didn't want to take our child in front of a white person that was witnessing that. So that's one of the stories that I tell. I tell the stories of my personal experiences because of this walk. In my, my heart, I feel that 
the experiences that are in this book were given to me by spirit to teach me how to live a good life and to live in balance and, and be happy. Uh, I don't feel like I can charge somebody to share what spirit gave to me freely. But as far as the book being sold, I think that I think this book can benefit anyone who wants to read it from the ages of five up to 105. They can get something from this book because there's it's got a wealth of information in it. Yeah. I don't even feel like I wrote it, Alice. I feel like my hand guided the pen. Yeah. But when I read it, I feel almost like I'm reading it for the first time. And I've probably read it a hundred times because, as you know, to publish a book, you go through a lot of rereading. Reading and rereading. I know people don't realize you got to read and rewrite and reread and rewrite. Yeah. Well, are you are you going to keep writing? Is there another book after this one? Well, I've been asked to consider writing a sequel to it. Okay. And I am thinking about that. I want to see how this one goes. I have other writings article type things like blog entries and uh, telling some of the stories that have happened as I've traveled. Okay. Well, this has been very interesting. I have to say that. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You got it, James Beard. Good luck. A doctor of humanities, Rochelle Stevens, has been compiling anthologies, prose, and poetry throughout her life. And with the help of some spiritual guidance, she carefully chose selections that are thought-provoking, inspiring, and comforting for her book, Catharsis. Um, so, you know, Catharsis is an introspective odyssey where everyday and societal topics are explored in what I would like to say an exciting way while acknowledging spiritual guidance through the reference of biblical scriptures and those anthologies, which are the short stories, prose and poetry, sparking interest on some tabooed subjects. For example, the use of contemporary vernacular or elephant in the room type issues, relationships and love, um, which inspires readers to reflect, grow and experience. Uh, okay. Uh, are there any specific stories or experiences that that stand out for you that you feel will be you know the most cathartic for your readers yes I do um one of the poems is very thought provocative the name of this one is note say to yourself I'm sorry let me just read this for you quickly for overindulging others just to gain their burden for stepping down to become lowly when already I was standing up upon my rock, for denying myself the formidable pleasure of saying yes. Instead, I fasted from the truth, my heart's desire, and said no to myself. A shadowed vision of the rainbow after the travail of my dream. It is still raining, but determined. I will weather the storm I want to be. So I've written this note out of love for myself, just a reminder to say sorry to myself. So then I have discussions in the book with focus and exercises for my readers. So it already contains a companion workbook, if you will, to go through the cathartic experiences. Um, I love this one because this is a very introspective piece where people can look at themselves. And um, I want to be able to encourage others to step outside of their, their comfort zones, step outside of overindulging others. Sometimes we have to think about what is best for ourselves so that we can progress and be better for others. So that's a simple one that I I really do love. But there are so many uh, short stories and poetry and prose in the book that I think people will absolutely love. Do you share the experience that inspired a particular story, a particular poem? Like, do we know this poem that you just read? 
do you explain in the book what happened to you, what, where this poem came from? Um, well, I, the focus of this poem is just um, encouraging others. It wasn't a particular experience that happened to me, but collectively, I think that we all have tried to please others at some point in time for various reasons when perhaps it didn't feel right, it wasn't the right thing for us to do. In the long run, we learned our lessons. And so basically this book talks about lessons learned in life. How does it work? Um, maybe you could share a short story with me um, and explain how that translates into a worksheet for the reader. So not every story will have the questions and the focus. It's just on a few of them that I feel is very introspective that will be good for individuals to kind of work through. Uh, for example, I do have another one that's called The Mirror of a Woman. Okay. Mm -hmm. So The Mirror of a Woman. Have you ever tried reading words looking through a mirror? It displays the reverse of how we would actually read it. Many women have mirrors or at least access to one, whether or not they choose to use it. How you identify yourself may not be how someone else perceives you. Reflective imagery is used to see at a glimpse what others visualize or may superficially discern of you. Purpose-filled, self-disciplined, and efficient women extinguish at the onset any negative thoughts or exclusions implied by themselves or others. However, constructive criticism can be utilized for improvement and mental strengthening, while criticism alone invigorates isolation and resentment among many other unhealthy emotions. When the mirror of a woman reveals the ultimate acceptance, showing what is pleasing to her, it triggers confidence, energy, contentedness, and possibly provocative unilateral conversation. It is not a secret that women were created resourceful, and so are men, but that's another subject. Viewed acceptance permits the lovely lady to proceed with the plan she has scheduled ahead or to schedule, to reschedule whichever one comes first at the greater demand. Even still, the mirror is a constant reminder of courage and priority, strength and creativity. The mirror shows her how to navigate through minor flaws until she gets it right or someone can make it pleasing in her sight. If it hasn't been said, the mirror of a woman is her most useful tool. The power she uses from within will always be her most effective asset. So delving introspectively, or if you are the counterpart, what can the woman in your mirror see? Does she see pride, joy, respect, influence, affluence, or beauty? Is she goal-driven, objective, inundated, loved, passionate, in despair, joyful, pursued, purged, or purged remiss, committed, angered, bold, confident, loyal, discontent, in love, destitute, prayerful, peaceful, exuberant, excellent, healthy, or malnourished? Does she exude an inflated sense of superiority? Or is she dominated by an ultra-inferiority complex, disallowing her to move forward in life? Do you find her to be common, uncommon, intelligent, unique, or an emotional, questionable relationship flight risk, or to boot underway? Is she a Christian, yet secular, spiritual, or righteous, spiteful, or perpetually complicated, just for the sake of being complex, materialistic, or physically attractive, gilded with wit, mundane or determined, lit by fire or just lit, forgiving, powerful, intimidating, 
or intimidated, gifted, excellent, anointed, even appointed to stand on the pedestal of life. Whether you have evolved a few times more over or represent the other woman, the undiscovered flower, the revolutionized improvement guru remains the same, are the first wife or supposedly the last. If anyone who really knows, I believe we all have evolving multiple complex sides to our personalities. As women, our many faces correlate with our many hats, which denote life as we see it in the moment. Furthermore, we are not what we wear or what others actually see. Reflectively, the mirror of a woman should be how she perceives herself. Personally, I believe when a real woman looks into the mirror of her life, she sees herself differently, opposed to the way others see her. Look beyond yourself through the reflection of infinity when you look through the mirror of a woman. Which one are you? Will anyone ever really know? So that's that particular prose. And I have a discussion for that for, for people to go through. And this is not just for women, but it's also for men because we're asking whoever your partner is, how do you see the woman in your life or the women in your life? But the takeaway here that I that I also explain is when you look into the mirror, don't put yourself together just to tear yourself apart. Mm. So I do out whatever prose or if I do it in poetry in a poetic way or a short story, if it may seem as though it's something that's very introspective that is delving maybe if you will, into the deep or maybe a dark side of us, I want to always conclude with encouragement, something to look at, something to reflect on. I want to give some type of resolve or a different perspective. I bet it would be so interesting if readers filled out the worksheets and then sent them back to you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. That would be your next exactly. book. Exactly. <laughs> and I assume you're going to keep writing. I'm going to keep writing, you know, and looking and listening to what people are talking about, listening to uh, what we hear in our society and trying to add a little twist to it. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.